Welcome to MRS Bulletin's Materials News Podcast, providing breakthrough news and interviews with leading researchers. My name is Philip Ball. In 1989, two researchers working at the University of Utah claimed to have achieved nuclear fusion of deuterium, an isotope of hydrogen, in a simple benchtop experiment involving electrolysis. They suggested that their discovery, dubbed cold fusion, might point the way to a cheap and environmentally friendly form of energy generation. But these experiments could not be reproduced by other groups and elicited a great deal of scepticism. Eventually, support for cold fusion all but evaporated, and many now regard the claims as mistaken. Now, 30 years later, a research team from Canada and the United States has published a paper in Nature reporting their results from a two-year study sponsored by Google into the possibility of achieving cold fusion of deuterium via electrolysis and absorption into palladium metal. I'm here at MIT to speak to Yetming Chang, who was one of the authors of this recent study published in Nature that attempted to revisit cold fusion and to see if there was anything in there that was worth investigating further. Yet I guess the thing that struck me most when I saw this report was, you know, it was 30 years ago that cold fusion happened That's and right. it happened with a lot of controversy there were accusations of even fraud in some cases, um, certainly of irreproducible results. Uh, so some people think this is almost a classic example of pathological science. So it's a contentious area. And I wondered, first of all, how it came about that after three decades, we're revisiting this, but also what persuaded you to risk going into that area? That's a question that a number of people have asked me. And the way that I got involved was that I was contacted by Matt Trevithick, who is the program manager and now organizer at Google. Uh, Matt had been a, a graduate student here at MIT in, in, in that time period and had you know, maintained an interest in the years since uh, in cold fusion, the possibility of cold fusion. And he approached me uh, rather carefully. You know, he, he and I knew each other from the energy uh, research area. And he had spent some time as a venture capitalist and funded some companies. And I had uh, gotten to know him through those uh, interactions. Uh, he popped the question after some, you know, some circling around it, well, what do you think of cold fusion? Do you, do you have a position on cold fusion? And I told him honestly that what happened in that time period was that just a couple of years earlier, the HITC frenzy had started up. Mm -hmm. right. So in 1987, I became involved in HITC research. Out of MIT, we had uh, formed a company called American Superconductor. Right. There were four faculty who were involved in starting that company. I was one of the four. I was an assistant professor at the time. When cold fusion emerged two years later, uh, the topic um, became uh, very high profile, I was actually very busy working on high ATC research. And I didn't really pay that much attention to it. It came and went so quickly <laughs> that I had, you know, I had a recollection of it, but I had uh, not spent a great deal of time looking into it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I told Matt that, you know, honestly, you know, I, I don't have an opinion about it. I know what I've read, you know, but uh, I've never uh, looked into it deeply. And his reaction, the follow-on question was, well, 
would you be interested in <laughs> taking a closer look at it? And I was interested from the perspective of a material science problem. So what did you consider are the material science issues of cold fusion? I mean, just to recap, the idea was that hydrogen, or deuterium in fact, was being absorbed into palladium electrodes and concentrated to very high densities. That's right. Um, and the claim was that they were high enough to overcome this Coulomb barrier to the coalescence of, of deuterium nuclei and then fusion. And I guess one thing I remember that came out of that was just how interesting the hydrogen-palladium system is because palladium is just this sponge for hydrogen. So what That's right. what, what, what do you think are the materials issues involved? So certainly that was that, that is a starting point. Point. Palladium is not the only material that will absorb hydrogen to high concentrations, but certainly it's the exemplar mm-hmm. of such a system. The circumstantial evidence that you know, Matt and his colleagues had tracked from the work that had gone on since, and there's been a continued effort, generally not in uh, well-known journals, but published here and there, and also a body of work at uh, SRI, for example. The general sense was that you needed to get to uh, very high concentrations, uh, meaning uh, at least approaching a ratio of hydrogen to palladium of close to one to one. Mm -hmm. Palladium hydride is actually a very uh, simple material from a crystal chemical point of view. Palladium is a face center cubic metal, and hydrogen uh, normally occupies the octahedral sites. And so if you were to saturate it at a ratio of one to one, you would have the rock salt structure just right. like an ACL. With hydrogen just sort of slipping in the gaps between the palladium atoms. That's right. Yeah. And sitting in, so if the palladium were the sodium, uh, then the hydrogen would be the, in the chlorine positions. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's really a, a fairly simple structure, but it turns out that uh, it's very difficult to get to that ratio of one to one. So even though it's a sponge, it's only a sponge up to a certain point. Mm-hmm. If you have ambient hydrogen pressure of one atmosphere and you're at room temperature, it'll reach a ratio of about 0.7. And uh, as you go from 0.7 towards one, the pressure that you would need to insert further hydrogen goes up exponentially. Mm-hmm. So what made it interesting was the connection to many of the things we've done on uh, ion insertion compounds for batteries, mm-hmm. for lithium-ion batteries. It's always you know, struck me as uh, unusual that when we have a lithium-ion battery, it's a four-volt battery, which means that there's a driving force of four electron volts difference between two electrodes. And that's an enormous amount of driving force. And we run the battery back and forth all day long. Right? So the original idea was that electrochemistry is known to be an extremely powerful driving force. And therefore, could we uh, harness electrochemistry and specifically solid-state electrochemistry in order to reach uh, higher concentrations, these more, let's say, metastable states of palladium hydride? And in fact, there are you know, two other phases that tantalized us, and we have not yet been able to make them, but that are open questions as to whether or not uh, they could be made, aside from the palladium hydride that's uh, rock salt-based. Right. Yeah. And getting this much hydrogen into palladium, there are reasons quite aside from cold fusion to be interested in doing that, is that right? Like hydrogen storage. That's right. Catalysis, hydrogen storage, uh, metal hydrides have been used as separation membranes. Uh, One of my colleagues, Curtis Berlingett, working on also this project, 
he has developed a membrane reactor for deuterating compounds or pharmaceuticals. Uh, so deuterated drugs are an interesting category of uh, drug compounds. So one of the spin-outs of this research that came from our Google-sponsored project was such a reactor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are some of the reasons that uh, we were interested. Also, there's a uh, common phenomenon in these compounds that are able to intercalate high concentrations of another uh, species, which is that there are very dramatic uh, volume expansions and contractions. The lifetime of lithium-ion batteries is uh, often determined by that expansion and contraction. One thing I often say is that electrochemistry is powerful enough to break any material. There is no material that can resist the forces of electrochemistry. And a simple force balance would explain why that's the case. If you were to consider, for example, the elastic energy that you can store in a solid versus the electrochemical driving force. So we can break anything with electrochemistry. An example of the counterpart of that would be using electrochemistry as a mechanical device, as a mechanical actuator. We've done some work on those types of devices as well. So that's how this area of using electrochemistry as a driving force to change composition and structure and phase stability of compounds all ties together with a number of possible applications. For these Google-funded experiments themselves then, what did you do? How did you go about trying to recreate what was done 30 years ago or perhaps doing things differently to how they were done 30 years ago? How did you go about looking for signatures of cold fusion? I will uh, first say that our part of the work up to this point uh, has not really seriously gone after the cold fusion experiment per se. It's been focused on making the materials that we would like to now use as targets in a particular experiment, uh, which Thomas Schenkel Uh, at uh, Berkeley Labs is doing, uh, which is essentially a tabletop pulse plasma experiment in which he is able to create a neutron emitting uh, fusion, you know, essentially at will with the turn of a knob. There's an experiment that uh, Thomas is doing, which we regard as a a reference experiment because it's very well behaved and therefore it's well suited for looking for deviations from uh, expected behavior. This experiment then does see some fusion, is that right? But, yes. it's, but it's not electrochemically driven, it's in a plasma phase. That's right. So how, how, right. how does that work? How does yes. the fusion happen? So it's, uh, it's a pulse plasma, and so there is a target, uh, which in his experiment is palladium. Mm-hmm. Right? During the experiment, there is actually plasma bombardment of that target. And therefore, if a highly hydrated metal is a medium for enhanced fusion, that's an experiment that could show us the effects. Now, the the classical aqueous electrochemistry experiment within the project, that is also, of course, of interest because that was the the original experiment. A great deal of the work that went on uh, was to try to quantify to high precision the calorimetry associated with such an experiment. That's one of the things we learned a great deal about, how difficult it is to measure heat very precisely. Mm -hmm. And that's important because in the original claims, calorimetry was key, wasn't it? That they were claiming that they saw what they called excess heat. So, in effect, more energy given out than was put in. That's right. A number of people have attempted to replicate that experiment since... And to our knowledge, there is not an example where 
when all of the potential errors are accounted for, corrections are made, that there's a clear verification of an anomalous result. Mm -hmm. Just briefly to go back to the plasma experiment, as I understand it, the plasma contains, amongst other things, deuterium ions, right? And an electric field applied to the wire is, in effect, accelerating them. So they're being kind of fired at high energies at the hydrogen or deuterium-saturated target. That's right. And then some fusion is being seen as a result of that. But in a sense, that's not necessarily surprising. It's the Yeah, that's right. That's why it's a good baseline experiment mm-hmm. to begin with. And if the presence of a target, a highly hydrated metal, is able to influence that reaction, then that would be another sign of the metal lattice in some way uh, mediating fusion. Right, okay. And I'm thinking about the ways that you were looking for fusion, because in addition to the calorimetry, one of the key ways of looking was through the other products of a deuterium-deuterium fusion, things That's like right. neutrons yeah. and gamma rays. We, so you were measuring those as well? We were not uh, in okay. our experiments, but Thomas is in uh-huh. his okay. experiment. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's the nature of the collaboration. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our job, uh, as I see it, is to attempt to create these unusual phases that we think might be accessible under the right electrochemical conditions. And if we can make them, we can verify them and stabilize them for long enough to do these experiments, these become interesting targets for the actual experiments that would measure, for instance, neutron yield. Right. Did you see anything in those experiments that made you think, hang on, there might just be something in this. It might just be made to work in some way. In using just the palladium wire target and going to lower energies, what Thomas will tell you, is that he is seeing a neutron yield which is about a factor of 100 higher than what theory would predict. But uh, he will be very careful to explain that that is the difference between almost nothing and something greater than, slightly greater than nothing. Uh, As you know, we've been uh, very careful uh, not to get out ahead of our ski tips in uh, looking at these phenomena. So we're trying to be very, very cautious and to not make any claims that we are not able to verify. Aside from the question of whether you might see fusion, did you find out things from the experiments that you found interesting and new from the materials point of view? Yes. One of the aspects of our experiment from the very beginning was that uh, we wanted to use different electrolytes. It's an electrochemical experiment. We use a, a proton conductor, which can be liquid or solid. And of course, water is one is the liquid in the aqueous case. We also use two different forms of uh, solid proton conductors. And one was uh, naphion, which is a polymer proton conducting electrolyte. And another is a ceramic compound, barium cerium yttrate, uh, BZY. And uh, that's a crystalline uh, high-temperature ceramic electrolyte. We compared results using these three. And one of the conclusions that we came to is that in all of these experiments, the electromechanically driven volume changes are critical to the outcome. It turns out that the aqueous electrolyte is conformal always. So no matter how much damage we create in the palladium, 
we can show you the evidence that there's an enormous amount of damage that takes place as you hydride and dehydride these metals. So it, it uh, just cracks because of the expansion and contraction? Yes. This is not especially surprising when you look at the volume changes crystallographically. Okay. Okay. In our experiments, we both carried out the electrochemistry and simultaneously measured the lattice parameter and calibrated that in a way that uh, we believe put the tightest error bars uh, available to date on uh, how much hydrogen we have in there. And what we found was that when the electrolyte is conformal, you are able to load to much higher concentrations than when it's not. It's really a mechanical failure problem that limits what you can do. Mm-hmm. The way that the insertion and the loading uh, of uh, hydrogen into the metal works is that we have an analogy that it is a leaky bucket. We have electrochemical insertion that's taking place, but at the same time, there's a hydrogen evolution reaction taking place. The relative rates of those two will determine the steady state loading level of hydrogen and palladium. To actually observe one of these aqueous electrochemistry experiments, there's a great deal of bubbling going on. Mm-hmm. Right? There's an there's enormous amount of hydrogen evolution taking place at the same time that you're pumping it in. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if you stop the experiment, it dissipates very, very quickly. And that's why it was necessary to simultaneously observe the measured lattice parameter. When we saw all the difficulties in making in reaching these high concentrations, the first thing that came to our minds was, well, how did these other practitioners do it previously? It's a complicated experiment. So we learned how to do it in the aqueous case, and we found that as you went to the harder and harder electrolytes, actually the lack of conformality between the electrolyte and the substrate was really the, the, the limiting factor. Uh, at the higher temperatures using the, the ceramic solid electrolyte, we actually got much lower loading. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the naphion was, was pretty good. And so we were able to get to about 0.9 with the naphion. We wanted to do a, quote, dry experiment rather than having everything immersed in aqueous electrolyte. And the reason for that is because we felt that that, that configuration would then allow you to use a number of other probes to monitor what was going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. At this point, I would say that the the solid-state experiment using a polymer solid electrolyte, even though it does not get us to quite as high a loading level as the aqueous electrochemistry experiment, that looks to us to be a a very good platform for future experiments. Right. What future experiments do you have planned then? To give you an example, you know, earlier I mentioned the rock salt structure phase. If you look at this FCC lattice, there are actually uh, two types of sites in which you could insert the hydrogen deuterium. There are the sites that correspond to the rock salt structure. And then there are tetrahedrally coordinated sites. Normally in an ionic compound, the compound may choose one or the other of these sites depending on uh, ion size and charge and the need to maintain a certain ratio of cations to anions. That's not true for palladium hydride. It's a metal. So one of the open questions is, could we coerce the hydrogen to occupy those tetrahedral sites instead of the octahedral sites. The reason that would be interesting is, firstly, it would give us a hydrogen to, or deuterium to palladium ratio of 2 to 1 rather than 1 to 1. The second is those sites are significantly closer together. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't know very much about how this metal screening is actually supposed to work, but it's at least an interesting host for the kinds of experiments we would like to do. Right. So, you know, if you ask, you know, well, why doesn't palladium hydride form that structure uh, naturally as you hydride it? Well, you know, of course, there, there's some thermodynamics ex- involved here. But uh, our, our question is whether or not under high enough 
electrochemical driving force, we can coerce that phase to form mm-hmm. and stabilize it long enough to do experiment time. Right. right. So that's one of the things we'd like to look into. Since the article was published, a number of people have reached out to us saying we'd love to you know, join you in this adventure. So, you know, one of my colleagues at Carnegie Mellon University, you know, Venkat Viswanathan, is going to help us with DFT calculations of the stability of these phases mm-hmm. to go along with the experiments that we'd like to do. And given that interest, do you see any prospect that there might be a kind of resurgence of enthusiasm for cold fusion related experiments or are people thinking there are other interesting directions that one could take from these experiments uh, so yes <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah uh, the the response to the article has been interesting we've received almost no uh, negative responses of course not everyone who has a negative response will contact us mm-hmm. right but we have received a, a lot of uh, positive and encouraging responses first of all that they found that the way that the work was conducted and described uh, seemed very rational mm-hmm. right if you do experiments carefully, describe them openly, and really apply the kind of scientific rigor we all would like to apply, then you know, the results, whatever they are, don't provoke kind of uh, negative reaction that it might otherwise. But I'm sure that others will start to think about other ways of doing this. And you know, one of the reasons we published the article was to encourage others to contact us. And what we imagine is that if there are interesting experiments to be done, uh, we have to work as a group to validate each other's experiments. That's the way we conducted the project today, and I hope it would uh, be conducted in the future. I think one of the really interesting aspects of having Google as a sponsor in this instance was that we had to undergo an internal peer review process. Uh, in order to decide what to do. But being such a controversial project, I think it would have been very difficult to undergo a typical research proposal peer review process and arrive at a point where, for instance, a government agency would be willing to fund it. Having done what we've done up to this point, I would hope that it might open things up a little bit. And at some point, it may be possible to get other sources of funding involved in looking at aspects of this that might otherwise be very difficult. That was one of our objectives, to see if we could reopen the interest in research in this area in such a way that it would be legitimized to the extent that the pursuit, the objectives, the results all warrant. Right. To to show that you're serious about this and that there are some genuinely interesting questions to be asked here. Wonderful. Thanks so much. My name is Philip Ball from the Materials Research Society. For more news, log onto the MRS Bulletin website at mrsbulletin.org and follow us on Twitter at MRS Bulletin. Thank you for listening.